Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hello, friend. Hope you're having an amazing day. You see what happens every time you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. Every episode, you get that bonus greeting. So hit that subscribe button. Get that bonus greeting on the next episode. I am here with the one and only. You requested. We got him. Giannis and Goldson. How are you, sir? I am wonderful. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. I've uh, kind of gotten to know you over the last year or two on LinkedIn. Uh, you put out these uh, these really cool sort of thought-provoking videos, and we've just kind of fostered a friendship. So super excited to get you on the ethics experts to hear your story, hear your perspective, and to just kind of pick your brain a bit. Well, I appreciate being called thought-provoking because I think one of the one of the problems we have in our society is we don't think enough. Yeah, uh, and we don't think clearly. And that part of being ethical relies on our willingness to engage ideas that may not be comfortable, that may not fit in with our preconceived conceptions. So I consider thought provoking a uh, very high praise. So thank yeah, you for that. Well, good. I'm glad it. Uh, I'm glad it resonated with you. Um, I'd love, like, what got you interested in this game? What got you <laughs> into the ethics game to where you know this complement of being thought provoking really resonated with you at what seems like a deep level? Well, that's a bit of a story um, that I'll, I'll try to make as concise as possible. Uh, I graduated from the University of California with a degree in English. And uh, what does one do with a degree in English? Uh, I used mine to go hitchhiking cross country for half a year. Cool. And then I crossed the Atlantic, went backpacking across Europe for half a year. And then after a year of travel, I ended up in Israel. And that's where I connected with my Jewish roots. Uh, I really was raised with no knowledge whatsoever. And much to my surprise, I discovered this vibrant culture of deep thought and spiritual values and, and ethical discipline. And I ended up spending nine years in Israel, wow. uh, studied, uh, became an Orthodox rabbi, met my wife, had her first two children. And then I embarked on my career teaching high school. I wanted to impart the values and the, and the ideas that I discovered to young people to help them in their journey through life. So. Uh, I taught for one year in Budapest, Hungary, uh, one, uh, two years in Atlanta, Georgia, and 20 years in St. Louis, where I live now. Wow. And in 2016, uh, I felt I had a long and successful and, and rewarding career in high school, but uh, you know, too much time with teenagers, um, not to mention my own. Uh, I was ready to move on right. to, to something a little bit different, and I'd done quite a bit of adult education. And I thought that I could take the universal values of Jewish thought and philosophy and present them in a context in a presentation form that would be relevant to a broad professional audience. And when I tried to distill the essential ideas, values, principles of Jewish thought into a soundbite, I came up with ethical leadership. And I've become very passionate for that. I don't think too many of us look at the world and don't often shake our heads and ask ourselves, how did we get here? What has happened to basic values? What has happened to ethical principles? Why are we as a society struggling so much to get along with each other, mm -hmm. to chart a course in our personal, in our professional, and in our societal lives? And what can we do about it? And 
know, after my um, time studying and teaching, the answers are all there. I come from a tradition of 3,000 years yeah. of insights into the human condition. So the answers are available to us. My job is to simply update the language so I can take that timeless wisdom and demonstrate how it addresses the problems and the challenges of the modern secular world. So let's talk a little bit about what that was like. You did this six months on the road. I'm sure you have thousands of stories. Maybe that's ready for another book. Maybe your memoirs will capture those uh, wild days hitchhiking across the country. Then you spend some time uh, on the other side of the pond, and then you end up going to Israel. Talk to me about that sort of aha moment or that epiphany moment where you were like, my gosh, I have all of these roots, and I, ha I knew nothing about it. What was that... Um, what was that revelation like? And as you started to dive into that culture, you obviously went deep. You stayed there for nine years. What was it along the way on that path of exploration that kept you on that path to the point where you feel like, man, this is absolutely my purpose. This is what my job is. Well, I tell some of the story in my TED Talk. Um, I, uh, I got to Israel, and my plan was to have a classic Jewish experience by volunteering on a kibbutz, a uh -huh. collective farm. But the dollar was at an all-time high that summer. And there were, I think, eight or nine million Americans. And when it got cold in Europe, a lot of them crossed the Mediterranean and went to Israel and had the same idea I did. So for the first time in anybody's memory, you couldn't find a place on a kibbutz. Wow. There were just no spots for volunteers. Well, I didn't have the money to, to just hang out. And I also didn't have the frame of mind. I, I needed structure. I've been living out of a backpack every day and looking for a new place to sleep every night. And and then I was just fried. I needed, I needed some kind of routine. And I had once heard that there were seminaries. There were places you could go to study the Old Testament. And I thought, well, that's something that could keep me engaged for a couple of months before I headed off to you know, Kenya and Botswana. And so I found my way into one of these seminaries. It was called a yeshiva. And my first day, I was brought into a classroom for a lecture on Jewish philosophy. And I was the first one in the room. And it was cold. And I wasn't properly dressed. And there was this one chair in the back, far back corner with a, with a ray of sun on it. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe I can just get a little bit of warmth there. I took that chair. The next few minutes, the whole classroom filled up around me. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't room for one more chair, one more person. And the instructor walked in, and everyone stood up, and I looked for a way out. Because this instructor was not just a rabbi. He was Hasidic. So picture the big black hat and the long black coat and the scraggly beard and the side locks and the thick glasses. And I knew what was coming. You better listen to me or you're going to burn in hell for all eternity. I couldn't listen to this. I had to get out, but I couldn't. I was trapped. Because the room was so full. Because the room was so full. I would have had to make a <laughs> spectacle of myself climbing over a dozen people, literally, to get out. So I sank back in my chair. I thought, okay, I can survive anything for an hour. And then he starts to talk. And he has an accent, but it's not Yiddish. It's New England. And he is so articulate and so eloquent and so knowledgeable and so rational, rational. I couldn't reconcile 
the contradiction, the paradox of someone who looks like an anachronism out of you know, 18th century Europe with someone who sounds like a professor of philosophy from Johns Hopkins University, which I subsequently found out he was. <laughs> there you go. Good ear. And that was that was the tremendous lesson for me in stereotypes, in preconceptions. Mm. I knew who he was, and I was dead wrong. And, and I'll tell you one one beautiful moment for me when I gave my TED talk after I told the story on the TED stage, and I came off the stage. I was coming back into the auditorium. A woman intercepted me, and she said to me, "You know." When you got up on that stage, I knew what kind of person you were, and I knew what kind of talk, speak, talk you were going to give, and you blew away my expectations. Thank you. How interesting is that? And I thought, wow, you know, life comes full circle. That's, that was my whole intent. And I opened my TED Talk with the line, I am a religious fundamentalist. That's for the shock value. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the dead silence in the auditorium. And then I step forward and I break into a smile. I say, I know that's a dangerous way to start a talk. And everybody cracks up and it breaks the tension. It gives me the opportunity to demonstrate through that experience how the judgments we make based on first impressions, based on preconceptions, prevent us from actually getting to know other people mm -hmm. and consequently prevent us from getting to know ourselves because we retreat into our ideological enclaves. We associate with people who are just like us and we make assumptions about the rest of the world without the knowledge or the experience that gives us the right to do that. Yeah, that piece of the puzzle of, um, it's, it prevents us from getting to know other people. There's also this other kind of layer to it or this indirect layer to it where you know, my stereotypes of you are going to prevent me from getting to know you, but also the stereotypes I assume you have of me may prevent me from getting to know you as well, right? So there's all these walls up that are, you know, at some level, you know, why, why do we have stereotypes? Maybe that's a good question for you. Why, why is this something that's such a big problem for us to fight against? There must be some kind of value in stereotypes, and yet it's not, you know, it also causes a ton of, like, problems that you've just alluded to. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's really, very, it's very simple. There are so many impressions, so many impulses coming at us all the time. Yeah. You know, our minds are designed to subconsciously filter out unimportant information. Now, what's unimportant? The subconscious mind is making decisions all the time about what's important, what's unimportant. You ever have the experience? It happens to me all the time. I go to the refrigerator to look for something, <laughs> and it's not there. And I ask my wife, are we out of this? No, it's in the refrigerator. Right? Because I'm expecting it to be on the second shelf, and it's on the third shelf. Mm -hmm. My mind has programmed me to expect it to be in a certain place. And if it's not there, it doesn't exist. And I don't even look. 12 inches, six inches away. Right. Because, and, and it's not a conscious decision. You know, we talk about unconscious bias. There are so many applications of that. When we have to deal with a lot of people, and it's just getting worse because social media and the internet and, and Zoom and, 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 and all our devices, I mean, our brains just can't keep up. And so, to make our lives easier, we want to categorize people, places, and things as quickly as possible. 
Yeah, right. So that we don't have to do, we don't have to struggle with all of this input. And that's okay as long as we recognize that we might have to change things. We might have to rearrange. We may have to reconsider. We get locked into those stereotypes. That's when we have a serious problem. Yeah, and at some, you know, as you were talking about that, I'm just thinking about how at some level the increase in stereotyping or the higher propensity to do it while, you know, while, you know, in spite of our sort of general collective uh, assuming ourselves to be more open and accepting and tolerant and so forth, there's kind of this counterbalance going on or these, these things are kind of counteracting with each other because the natural response of the human body is sort of an anti-fragile response, right? You walk barefoot on the cement, your feet get calluses on them. That's a, we, we are a unique machine in the sense that, you know, increased, um, you know, um, you know, increased uh, stress on our, on our machine results in uh, more, more resiliency. Very, very few technologies, so to speak, have that same type of equality. And so at some level, this bombardment of like stimulus and, you know, all these things coming at us with social and devices and so forth could be sort of causing our collective sort of unconscious to be working on, on overdrive. And man, I just, I'm stereotyping everything. So in this age of connectivity, we have this thing sort of working against us uh, achieving the tolerance and the, you know, un unity or whatever we're talking about that's kind of subversive and because it's kind of happening on a subconscious level. So to your point, this subconscious bias thing or uh, just having some awareness to these tendencies that we that might be naturally sort of wired into us and figuring out sort of tactics and strategies to let those evaporate away so you can make that actual connection with somebody that you otherwise wouldn't is kind of the path to true connectivity or true kind of, you know, harmony in the world maybe. I think that's very insightful. Um, and you, know, you mentioned this, this principle of anti-fragile, which I think is so lost on us today with the safe spaces and the, the, um, yeah, the, the unwillingness, right? the, the, the unwillingness to even give credibility right. to any person, any idea who's coming from a different point of view. Um, but there was a time when the movement of society was at a manageable pace and that we could adapt individually and collectively and become stronger. Right. But now it is so fast. Totally. We just can't keep up. And you know, all the gurus tell us, you got to get out of your comfort zone. So why don't we do it? Because it's uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable <laughs> out there. We're so overloaded. out there, yeah. That's right. That's right. So you're sitting in this class, you're, you're, you're wedged in there. This ray of sunshine is sort of... Uh, you know, shining on you. You have this guy up here who really flipped your entire view of what you expected him to be and so forth. What was it in what he was saying beyond the contrast between what you expected from him and what you got and the eloquence that he was maybe, you know, showing to that room that really made you come back to that next class and ultimately stay there for almost a decade? You know, the, the stereo, the breaking of the stereotype was, was really what got me to come back a second time. You know, I, I'd like to visualize myself, envision myself as, as a seeker of truth. Right. Well, it's very fashionable to be a seeker of truth. Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great thing for your LinkedIn headline. It sounds really nice, you know, yeah. But it's not so fashionable to claim that you found the truth. <laughs> that sounds arrogant. Yeah, 
I, who do you I, think you are? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, if you found your truth, that's fine. But the truth, that's a singular. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's, it's one of the, one of, one of my other rabbis, and I'm coming back to your question in a moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my other rabbis, he loved to say that, that man, human beings are a, um, are, are psychological, not logical creatures. Mm. And, and I, 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 you know, I, I heard that first from him, I guess it was probably about 35 years ago. And, and I, I still have trouble with it. Mm-hmm. Because the only thing that interested me is this true, is this reality. Don't talk to me about beauty. Don't talk to me about community. Don't talk to me about fulfillment. Don't talk to me about tradition and continuity and respect for the past. That's all lovely. Is it real? Mm -hmm. That was the only thing I cared about. Prove it to me and I'll stay. If you can't prove it to me, I'm out of it. Well, it was the third or fourth class. And the rabbi would always pass out a, an outline at the beginning of class. And this one at the top says altruism. And I thought, ah. Here we go. Here we go. I got it. Yeah, I should right? get my plane ticket now. Yeah. Because I know, <laughs> I know that there's no such thing as altruism. So everything. Let's yeah. pause on that. What do you mean by that? Okay. There's no there's such thing as altruism. What I mean is that is that that every every in, everything is based on self-interest. Okay. Right? If I do a favor for you, it's either because I want something from you, or if I'm a little more refined, it's because it gives me a good feeling when I do it. Or if I'm a little more refined, it's because I recognize the value of kindness and I want to live a life according to values. But ultimately, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had been, I had formulated this view, yeah. you know, through years of college and studying literature and studying philosophy. And I thought, I'm all set for this. And he opens up the class and he says, any college sophomore will tell you there's no such thing as altruism. You sunk in your chair a little. Oh my, well, not a little. <laughs> I mean, talk about deflating. Yeah, totally. Not only does he know what I'm thinking, but he's already two steps ahead of me. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't process a single word he said. <laughs> it's a very slippery argument. The idea of why how to demonstrate that there is altruism. And it's not just him. I mean, classical philosophy mm -hmm. um, has, has refuted this idea that everything is based on self-interest because it, it, it actually, it comes, and this is, this is getting into the weeds a bit, but it comes from a, a, a greater context. Why do some people take pleasure in doing for others and some people don't? The truth is that when they, they've done studies on children, they found that children demonstrate greater happiness giving than take. Yeah, and so in some sense, it is hardwired into us, right. and we get trained out of it. I agree with that. But ultimately, it, it's it it does come down to the individual. What is it that gives me pleasure? It's not all hardwired. 
it has to do with my values. It has to do with my worldview. It has to do with my environment. It has to do with my um, personality, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, everything that can, contributes to me. And it's it's a very it's it's not an easy idea to really get a grip on, and it's still one I have trouble articulating. Yeah. But what it really comes down to is a matter of free will. We choose. Right? Great quote from uh, Spider-Man, I think. We are who we choose to be. Yeah, that's true. Green Goblin said that right before he tried to kill Spider. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that that was his choice. Yeah, that was his choice exactly. And you know, it's it's really you know, I love the way that that Hollywood sometimes gets it so right. Doesn't happen that often, but you know, it's a here's this this maniac, homicidal maniac, declaring <laughs> that everything is free will. Right. We can choose to be good. We can choose to be bad. Do you feel like that's a pretty big debate, the free will debate? I think it's a much bigger debate than it should be. All right, let's talk about that. Um, you know, it, it's easy to say that everything is hardwired and that everything we do is simply response. But Right. That's kind of the other yeah, argument, I, right? That's kind of the anti-free yeah. will argument or whatever. That's the anti-free will argument. Yeah, yeah. But, but I think... Whenever we find ourselves struggling to make a choice, that itself is the evidence of free will. Right. If it were all hardwired, why would we ever have to struggle? Well, unless you're hardwired as a flip flopper. <laughs> oh, okay. Prince Hamlet, right? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. My personality is to be indecisive. No, there, there definitely, there definitely is that. But you know, think about when. You know, if you have this this uh, this experience, you, you come out of a grocery store and you discover that you were undercharged. And you have this moment mm -hmm. where you think, oh, I should give that back. And then the other voice starts saying, well, it wasn't your mistake. Uh, well, their prices are too high. Well, you, you don't have time. You earned that. All that rationalization, you know, how many times have you been taken advantage of? And it's karma, you know, the universe is rewarding you for yeah. <laughs> any rationalization that we can come up with. Right? Rationalization itself is evidence of free will. Yeah, right. Because we're using the rational mind to come up with reasons that are essentially irrational. You know, and, and uh, we have a uh, the day of Yom Kippur, the day of Atama, where we fast for 25 hours, no food or water. It's not comfortable. Why do I do that to myself? Nobody knows. I can go home and, and, and have a meal and come back to synagogue. Nobody knows. It's a value. And it's not something I used to do because I didn't used to have that value. But I recognize this is something that is important. You know, the sages tell us, it's fascinating. They say, when we get to the, when we get to the end of our lives, we get to the next world, so every person will be shown his, what we call the, the inclination, the evil inclination, the, the, that, that, that little devil on the shoulder that is, is always trying to tempt you yeah. to, do, to do what you shouldn't be doing. Everybody's going to be shown that impulse 
to do what's self-serving, to do what's uh, self-gratifying. And a righteous person will see a mountain and he'll wonder, how did I ever climb that mountain? And a wicked person will be shown a little smudge on the ground. And he'll, be, he'll say, how, did, how could I not get past that? And the way we understand it is that every time I resist temptation, I get a little stronger. It's a muscle. So the next time temptation comes, temptation comes a little stronger. Mm. Because that's what free will is. It's competing. So the things that tempted me 30 years ago are not the things that tempt me now. And the things that weren't even realistic for me to think about doing 30 years ago are now areas where I, I have a certain amount of, of uh, autonomy right. in making those choices. But if a person never pushes back against temptation, then that temptation never has to get stronger. And so the person never gets stronger. I see. Hence the small. How do you, how do you climb a mountain? One step at a time. Right. What if you never take that first step? You're going to stay at the bottom of the mountain. Yeah, that's an interesting picture. Um, I'm really fascinated by the free will argument. And I know that there are some religions that think everything is like, you know, written in the code. And there's even secular religions, so to speak, that, you know, we're, we're in a matrix and it's all, you know, it's all wired into us. But to your point, unless the struggle in those moments of decision are also part of the code, then it feels like there's some free will. It feels like I can do A or B. You know what I'm saying? It feels like yeah, that's yeah. how the world works. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, the, and one of the big mistakes people make is they think it means free will means that you control the outcomes. We don't control the outcomes at all. Mm -hmm. We have no control over anything in this world except our own responses, except our own rea uh, reaction is not the right word, right? The difference between reaction and response, right? So someone said, if, if you react to a medication or you respond to a medication, yeah. those are very different things. Right, right. right? So uh, reaction is just impulsive. That's, that really is, that really has little to do with free will. You know, if you, if you, if you go like this to me and I flinch, that's a reaction. I didn't do that consciously. I didn't choose to do that. And probably I can't stop myself from doing it. Okay. Even if I know it's coming. Maybe. Right? Okay. But to actually make calculated decisions, how will I respond? Right? If somebody insults me, if somebody cuts me off in traffic, if, if somebody okay. um, treats me unfairly, you know, I have any variety of, re of responses that are, that are available to me. Negative or positive, to your point. Exactly. To the extent that a reaction is something impulsive, uncontrollable, then your response really has a wide, you know, a wide spectrum of positive and negative, you know, actions you can take. Yeah, exactly. And so what happens is whenever I make a choice how to respond, that is the beginning of my own behavior modification. Right. Or reinforcement. To your point. Right. Yep. My own, my, the habits that we develop. What are habits? They're simply behaviors that have been repeated over mm -hmm. time. And so Maimonides, one of the great uh, thinkers of I think it was the 12th century, um, he said, um, most of life is habit. Develop good habits and you'll be a good person. Yeah. Um, so I love the uh, I love this story. Where did he 
where did he go with the altruism thing? Where did you guys land with that? Well, we really didn't. We moved on um, to other topics. But what, what it forced me to do was recognize that as a, as a cocky 24-year-old college graduate who had read the classics and traveled the world, I had life all figured out. And all of a sudden I'm confronted by a person who doesn't fit into my worldview at all, who is presenting me with ideas that are challenging the fundamental principles according to which I'm living. Right. And, and if I see myself as a seeker of truth and I want to keep that label, <laughs> I have to be honest. Right. I have to give it a chance. And I remember thinking, you know, this may take me a few weeks or even a couple of months before I punch holes in these theories and, you know, and then I can go back to my travels in good conscience. Right. And back to my worldview in good conscience. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And it, and, and, and the longer I say, and there were a couple of other guys who got there about the same time I did. And, and one would sit on, on the rabbi's right, one would sit on his left, and I sat at the end of the table and for every lecture. And then we would group after those lectures. And we would, you know, we take his side, we take our sides, we try to punch holes. Sometimes we come up with questions and we come to ask him in the next class. He always had articulate answers. And uh, yeah, two months later, we were all religious. <laughs> So it seems like you were essentially presented with some kind of a, you know, to borrow a term from physics, you, you were presented some, with some kind of a unified theory of how the world worked that, you, that seemed like a better unified theory than that which you had been sort of operating in prior to your trip out there. If you could boil down this new structure to what that truth is that's now, you know, been with you for, you know, several decades now, what, what was the foundational truth in that pursuit that, gave you the confidence to like shift gears and change track and stay on the track that you're on? Yeah. The, 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 uh, the classic, uh, the classical Jewish philosophers have, have boiled this down into three fundamental principles. Um, one, there's a creator who is the absolute power and the absolute authority. Two, he's revealed his will to human beings. And three, there are consequences for our actions. And from those three principles, everything else branches out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's one of the challenges that we have as a, as a, a largely secular pluralistic society is that we don't have a, a common set of values. We don't believe in a single higher authority. Right. And that makes it very difficult for us to agree on the direction that we want our society to move. What, what I try to do, and I think probably what you're trying to do in your work on ethics, is to sort of secularize moral thinking. Okay. And find what are values we can all agree on? What are approaches that we can all accept? What are principled compromises that we can make? Right with people who are very different from ourselves and have a very different worldview that will allow us to coalesce as a culture, as a society, 
so that we can not see this continued disintegration Mm -hmm. that is really quite terrifying at times. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, I mean, maybe maybe this has always happened or maybe this, uh, I mean, to your point, it kind of boils down to this conflict um, that's maybe rooted in uh, this moral relativism and we all have a different, you know, it's like we can all only see different colors and we're arguing whether something is red or whether it's green or something like that. It makes it tough to have a discussion about a painting or about a rainbow to the extent like, but how do we, like, how do we achieve that? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's part of, you know, maybe it's everyone just needs to read your book, which I'd love to get to in a second. But, you know, what do we do with this thing? Is this a new thing in sort of, I mean, it seems like a new thing in our country. Is it a new thing in the history of the world where there's this conflict about sort of what's real and what's not and, you know, what's objectively true and what isn't? Um, And to your point, how do we get to that lowest common denominator set of values that we can at least you know, have, you know, be at least anchored to irrespective of what those worldviews are and how those might differ on sort of a, a higher order level or something. You said something that really kind of intrigues me, the, the idea we, we see different colors. You know, I am slightly colorblind to the red range. Many males are. And there are many people who are almost completely colorblind. How do you describe color? Yeah, exactly. Because I don't know what colors I'm not seeing. <laughs> I see all different kinds of shades of red. But I know that I'm not seeing all of them. Well, the, I think that's it. That's the difference. Yeah. Like, objectively, you know that red exists, or somebody who's colorblind objectively knows that there's something that they can't see, and they view the way that they, at some level, they view the way that they view the world as deficient or something. I think you know, which is maybe why that wasn't the right analogy. But I think the challenge we have in just for shorthand, this moral relativism issue is that nobody thinks they're not seeing all the colors. Everyone thinks that they are seeing all the colors properly and that the other person must be colorblind. Yeah. And that, that's why, you know, in my, in my acronym of ethics, um, the H is humility, right? That we need to recognize that we don't see the whole picture. And we never will. None of us sees the whole picture. And that's why, you know, there's so much talk about diversity these days. And we miss the point because diversity is not just about checking boxes. It's about having different perspectives represented. Correct. Because even though no one of us can see the whole picture, together we can get much closer to seeing the whole picture. And we can just, you know, you asked about, has it always been this way? Um, For the most part, up until maybe the last couple hundred years, um, every human being believed in a higher power. Okay. They didn't always have the same vision of what that higher power was. You know, when Abraham came into the world, everybody believed in idolatry. They were all pagans. They believed in the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the stars, the God of the wind, the God of the water, the God of the trees. And Abraham came along and he, as a very, very young man, he, he said, it doesn't seem to make sense. If you have all these different powers, why does the world work in this predictable, systematic way? And what's really extraordinary is that nobody was willing to ask themselves that question before Abraham. Because 
when you ask a question, it means you're ready for the answer. Right. And that answer is just to the answer that everybody else is wrong. That's that's going to make my life awfully complicated. Yeah, there has and Abraham to... had the courage to do that. And not just to do it for himself, but to then tell people, you know, you got this wrong. And people tried to kill him. Right. You know, the word Hebrew in Hebrew literally means the one on the other side. Is that right? So they call him that because he came from the other side of the Jordan River. But they also called him that, or we call him that, and we call ourselves that, because he staked out a position on one ideological side and the whole world was on the other. And, you know, today you've got, you've got militant atheists. Yeah. Who, and, and, you know, it's another story that I tell in my TED talk that when I was in college, uh, sorry, when I was in high school um, and I was chatting with a classmate and for some reason I felt it was relevant to declare that I was an atheist. And he looked at me very calmly and he said, that's stupid. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I'm just amazed at the wisdom of, of a, of a college senior, he said, uh, sorry, a high school senior, he said, it makes no more sense not to believe in God than it makes to believe in God. You can't prove either one. Why do you want to believe in something you can't prove? And right on the spot, I, that makes sense. I stopped calling myself an atheist. I started calling myself an agnostic. And it was only when I was confronted with what I believed and what I found to be compelling evidence of a God that I was willing to change my label again. And what was that evidence? Well, that, again, I was there for months and years. Um, yeah, that's true. Okay. So it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I guess this is going to be a long episode, the, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's maybe not the best. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, a lot of it goes back to science. When you look at all the answers science doesn't have. Can't explain Big Bang. Can't explain so much about evolution. Can't explain spontaneous generation. Can't explain the absence of so much uh, present in the fossil record. Can't explain um, what they call dark energy, which mm -hmm. is not just the acceleration, but not just the expansion, but the accelerated expansion of our universe, which is against the laws of physics. To give it a name, to make it Feel like they've it's a phenomenon in a box. pretend yeah, like we understand it right? Label right? it yep yeah dark matter they can't identify the source of all the gravitational forces at work and there's so much there's so many um you know physical phenomena that they just can't explain i'm not anti-science i believe in molecules and atoms and subatomic particles and, I, and my mind is open to climate change although there's and so much misinformation on both sides. Uh, I'm not willing to, to take a firm stand on that. You might be a um, climate change agnostic, maybe. Well, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I think we, our political and social climate need to change more than <laughs> we need to worry about the, the world. That, then things will start to take care of themselves. But, you know, it, it, having an open mind to the possibility that there are answers that aren't going to fit in with my way of looking things. That's the intellectual integrity right. that I find lacking. And so starting with that, from that point of view, there is no good explanation 
for why we are here and how we continue to exist here if you don't posit a creator. And once you posit the creator and you start thinking about, okay, there's a creator. Well, if the creator's finite, then someone must have created the creator. Right. So the creator must be infinite. Also, you have an infinite being. Why is an infinite being need or want to create anything? He must, there must be some purpose to his creation. If there's a purpose to it, then we play a role in that. If we pray, pray, play a role in that, then there must be some means for us to understand the role we are meant to play. These are just logical conclusions. They're not proofs in and of themselves. They're syllogisms. But they're, yeah. But yeah, they're, they're logical extensions that collectively, together with all sorts of other evidence that we don't need to go into right now, doesn't create certainty because we're not meant to have certainty. That's part of free will. If you knew that if you uttered a word of gossip, if you stole a dime, that lightning would come down and incinerate you. Would you steal a dime? No, of course. Would you not. steal $100? Would you steal a million dollars? Is for there be to, for there to be free will, there has to be an element of doubt. Right. There has to be room for denial. Room for rationalization. You know what's interesting, Janison, is yeah. that um, this concept of intellectual honesty or as you called it intellectual integrity, I think if you ask any person on an individual basis, do you have all the answers? Everybody to a person would be like, absolutely not. And you'd ask anybody, well, are you a perfect person? Absolutely not. I'm full of flaws, right? But in sort of moments of conflict, we, se- we tend to like revert back to, you know, for lack of a better term, call it a backup style where this intellectual dishonesty ends up coming, kind of coming in to the picture to made a, make us dig, out, dig our heels into our position and ultimately, obviously, prevents us from being open uh, with that intellectual honesty or curiosity to consider this other position. What I find kind of interesting is that when, you know, you seem like somebody who's highly intellectually honest, highly open to considering other things, and it's almost as if that's only possible because you're standing on a rock or you're standing on a worldview that you have kind of a lot of confidence in. So that confidence allows you the budget or freedom to have those otherwise expensive, quote unquote, conversations uh, that might be contrary to your worldview uh, and you can engage in those in, in probably a more respectful way than this kind of caricature we're painting of the, you know, the Twitter argument or the Facebook argument that seems to be plaguing all of our cell phones, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because it's, it's, a, it's a quote that I actually used in my TED talk. Um, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, who was a luminary of the last generation, he said that all extremism and fanaticism comes from a lack of security. Mm. A secure person cannot be an extremist. And I was teaching my, uh, yeah, well, I was teaching my, my high school class one day and, and I taught my students the word ideologue. Mm-hmm. And one of the students says, well, aren't we ideologues? You know, we believe what we believe. And I said, here's the difference. If you claim to have a proof against what I believe, I'll listen to you, I'll consider what you say, and I'll have a discussion with you. I said, at, if you can prove to me 
that all of my axioms, all of my tenets are wrong. Yeah, I'll take off my skull cap and I'll go get a cheeseburger. <laughs> Bacon cheeseburger, maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I said, at this point in my life, I don't think you have such an argument. But if you claim you do, I'm willing to listen to you. And if you have compelling evidence, I'm willing to acknowledge that. An ideologue doesn't want to hear the other side and won't accept the other side. And as you just said, and as Rabbi Soloveitchik said, a lot of it comes from insecurity. Yeah. Most people, and it goes back to human beings being psychological and not logical creatures, most people make their decisions emotionally. And, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this in terms of politics. He says that, that and, and, you know, he, he, everything he says, he's basing in, uh, in studies and research, mm -hmm. is that people who are inclined towards openness, the quality of openness, are much more likely to be liberals and Democrats. People who are more orderly are much more likely to be conservatives or Republicans. And so your natural makeup is going to predispose you to one political view or another. And then you add into that all of your experiences, what college you go to, who your friends are, you know, the, the, the events that happen to you, who your parents are. You know, we end up in a place where we think we're making choices that really are, are, are biological or, or physiological, uh, physiologically important imposed on us and it's going to take a greater effort of will for us to re-examine those question those imagine if our political views are really really just impulses i mean that's crazy yeah yeah i mean it's not hard to imagine is it <laughs> no i mean when, when you put it that way and it's probably it's probably true at some level and i may have seen the lecture that you're talking about where where he talked about this where they have these studies of they kind of overlay political ideologies with personality type and you can see some, you know, relatively high, you know, R values and correlation values for, you know, these people sort of selecting into one, one side or the other. It's, it's pretty interesting. But I guess yeah, yeah, at some level, like you see the same kind of political party types in other Western countries. Do you know what I'm saying? So maybe it's yeah. just a natural thing and we think, you know, it's, you know, we got the, uh, the elephant and the donkey. I, I, I don't know what, what they have in England, but those those major parties map, you know what I mean? Right, right. And, and, and the, you know, the other point that he makes that, that is so important, Jonathan Haidt talks about this at length also, that you know, the right and the left need each other mm -hmm. because either, either philosophy can mutate into extremism very easily. Right? Conservatism can become reactionary. Liberalism can become radicalized. Totally. And... And when you have an engagement, so each side balances the other. Each side keeps the other honest. Each side keeps the other in check. Mm -hmm. And what we have now with this breakdown of any willingness to communicate, to legitimize, to cooperate, is that's why we're seeing this radical polarization mm -hmm. of our society, not just in politics, but really in every kind of social issue. We're becoming more and more and more divided in every way. Yeah. Even while we're talking about diversity and inclusion. And <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's very bizarre. It's like this 
sort of like cold social civil war in one hand and then the other hand we're trying to talk about these other things like tolerance and diversity and inclusion and so forth it's it's a very interesting conversation uh it's an interesting time if uh if nothing else as you were talking about this security thing and this ideologue thing you know i don't think there's any like children who are ideologues and you know, if altruism exists anywhere, it probably exists within children. So it's almost, it's kind of interesting that just to kind of chew on this like security thing, children are sort of, sort of some of the most insecure humans there are. They can't even make their own food. You know what I'm saying? But at that time when they're the tabula rasa or they're just absorbing everything, they're open to these different ideas and so forth. At some point though, they get jaded from the world or they get jaded from their experiences and they're no longer tapping into that natural altruism of just wanting to help and to make a difference or whatever. And they start to embed themselves in whatever view, you know, is the most kind of comfortable jacket for them. And then that openness that is inherent in us at some age is now no longer there and you can't even engage with that gear anymore or something. It's just, it's, it's an interesting thing that happens over the course of someone's life you know, up until the point where they like sort of settle into who they are or what their view is, and that that ends up getting etched in stone or something. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I, I would I would modify something that you said that that in a, in a healthy home, that little children are supremely secure. Okay. Be- yeah. Yeah. All because, right. Yeah. Good point. Because because of they they have parents, and the parents you know if the if the parents are you know again if it's a if it's a if it's a functional home and, and a stable home then the parents are providing that sense of security. Mm-hmm. They're not worried about where the next meal is coming from. They're not worried about having their needs met or, or fulfilled. And as they grow up and they go outside the home, they discover there's a broader world, a less predictable world, a less um, you know, safe world. Okay. So then they start to face certain anxieties. And then when adolescence and the teenage years here hit, that's when there's a complete breakdown. Right. As one of my rabbis likes to say, there's no more profound form of mental illness than adolescence. <laughs> um, but what's going on is that they are going through this break from childhood into adulthood. And they right. desperately want to be adults. And they're profoundly aware that they're not prepared to be. And that creates this tremendous tension and angst that, of course, on any of us who have raised teenagers are all too familiar with. Um, and they look for a replacement for the family. As they're trying to separate themselves because that's how they manifest this feeling of independence that they're trying to develop, mm-hmm. they need a replacement for that. And so they turn to groups, to clubs, to friends, to gangs, to ideologies. Uh, And if they are either self-aware enough or fortunate enough to land themselves with good associations, then that's going to facilitate their development into healthy adults. If they end up with corrosive uh, or toxic associations, then that's going to provide a tremendous challenge for them to develop in a healthy way. Yeah, I think that um, that refinement is an important one. You know, to that point I was making, that security provided from that stable home or, you know, really from, uh, even if it's unstable, there is a level of security that all children feel in terms of the, you know, the warmth underneath the, uh, the mama hen's wing or whatever. Um, 
I'd like to hop back to this point about, you know, you said earlier in the conversation that, you know, you feel like it's your job uh, to sort of translate these truths that you've been steeped in now for years. Um, it's your job to kind of translate those into a, for lack of a better term, uh, something that can be applied in our secular world that we're in. And you use this term of, you know, all this stuff maps to ethical leadership in the context of a business or in terms of, you know, some group that somebody is over. Talk to me about that bridge and what you mean by ethical leadership, how those things tie, tie back to the, to the truths you found in this, in this ideology that you're a part of. Well, one of my favorite observations is from uh, Professor Stephen L. Carter, who uh, in his book, Civility, uh, early on makes the observation that civility is the same root as civilization. And this ties in so perfectly with a fundamental principle of Jewish teaching. Uh, the, the term in Hebrew is, is derech eretz, and it doesn't translate perfectly. Um, it, it essentially means character. Character precedes the law. What does that mean? Because it means that the, what is the law? And this is why I titled my book, Grappling with the Gray. Yeah. Because the law gives us black and white. Black and white is the starting point. You know, it's, it's why so many businesses, companies, despite having compliance rules and compliance officers, still get themselves in trouble. Right. Because you can't codify ethics. You can't legislate ethics because ethics is a mindset. It is an attitude. It's the idea that I don't want to get by with what I have to do. I want to do what I ought to do. I want to recognize, I want to develop the discipline of recognizing and taking responsibility for the impact that my actions have on the world I live in. That's a mindset. Mm -hmm. And with that mindset, we can accomplish almost anything. Because I'm not demanding my rights. If I'm demanding my rights and you're demanding your rights, we're going to be banging our heads against each other all day long. Right. But if I'm taking responsibility by looking out for your rights and you're taking responsibility by looking out for my rights, we're going to get along just fine. Um, yeah, so perhaps if the law are the bricks, then you're only going to make a wall with the character that is the mortar. The mortar is going to fill in those cracks to allow this thing to actually stand because to your point, not every, not every single scenario is going to be articulated in the Torah or in whatever law you're, you're subscribing or to. Or any laws. I mean, you know, the, the famous quote that Benjamin Franklin supposedly made uh, after the Continental Congress, um, you know, what did you create? It's a republic if you can keep it. Yeah, right. The framers, I mean, most of the framers were highly religious men, but even Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson who were not, they understood that there has to be a commitment to some higher set of principles because otherwise, we're back to rationalization. You can read into the words of the constitution anything you want if you're creative enough. Right. And, and what, what, this is one of the big debates we have in, in, the, in the courts, right? The, the, what do they call them? The original... The original intent or, or something, the, yeah. Um, yeah, textualist. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something like that, right? They're saying, let's try to interpret the original intent 
And then you've got another school that's saying, well, let's try to interpret how it applies to us. Right. Well, there has to be an element of both. Right. But if you go too far one way or the other, then you're back to that problem we talked about with, with conservatism and liberal liberalism. Right. Either you're you're you you're so tightly anchored into the past that you can't function in the present or you're so eager to create a new reality mm-hmm. that you cut off all the ties that that connect you to the foundations and the and the source and the root mm-hmm. of, of where you started and who you are it's a good point real good point um so i know we're getting uh short on time here we didn't even get to talk much about your book, so we may want to just do another one of these in a little bit to <laughs> really dive into the book because this was a really great conversation. I want to be conscious of your time. Um, so let's talk about where can people find you? Where can people learn more about you? Where can they buy your book? Um, how can they connect? Yeah, so um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Uh, please look me up there. and I'm always happy to connect. I'm always looking for new connections and carry on the conversation. Also my website, which is my name. Jonasson Goldson, Y-O-N-A-S-O-N, G-O-L-D-S-O-N.com. Uh, you can find my articles, my links to, the bu- to buy the books, uh, videos, interviews, my podcast, The Rabbi and the Shrink. Um, yeah, that's a great podcast, by the way. I love, I, you guys have such a great vibe. You guys are, uh, I love the conversations you guys have. Yeah, well, you know, again, it's, it's my, my uh, co-host is a, is a Catholic Cuban uh, psychologist. Um, Match made in heaven, if you ask me. Yeah, and, you know, she's a woman. I'm a man, and um, you know we've got we've got very different perspectives we're starting from, mm-hmm. and we have we have a we share a certain common value for ethics, uh, but we come at it from different perspectives, and it, it makes for uh, some really lively discussion. Yeah, it it really does. Um, well, everyone, thanks for joining us today uh, on the Ethics Experts. Until next time. <laughs>